Today's scripture reading is from James 5, verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This is the living word of God for us today. Uh, my name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I know we have a lot of guests here with a baby dedication. And so those of you who are here for that today, uh, we're so glad you're here and uh, we welcome you. Uh, we have, uh, there's Rob Sweet, who is our lead pastor and a teaching pastor. And myself, I'm a teaching pastor. And I say this just to simply say, we have a congregation in Brentwood and we have this congregation in Franklin. And we both, we teach at each one, we rotate. So next week I'll teach in Brentwood and Rob will teach here. And so it, it may be a little odd if you ever visit us again and you say, where was that other guy? And I'll be in Brentwood and Rob will be here. Um, JJ, thanks for leading in the dedication for those and blessing for those families. And I just got so tickled when Jordan pulls out Zephaniah for a verse for your kid. Somebody top that next time. Zephaniah, really? You know, you have some obscure passage that no one knows about, but beautiful words. If you have your Bibles, this is what we do. We go there and we study through books of the Bible. And I'd like you to go to what we just read, James chapter five, it's verses 17 and 18. James 5, 17 and 18. Uh, we are, uh, as school ends, so too our study through James. We began this some three months ago and uh, we have been moving through it slowly and we are, we've got eight verses in this back end. I'm gonna pick up the next like four, two and then there's two next week and, we'll, and then we'll have a review. So we have two more weeks in the book of James. Rob, last week, I wanna take you back there and remind you that as he was introducing these last eight verses as this book ends, he said, you know, a cursory reading would lead you to think that James is kind of like, you know, grabbing all the loose ends and <clears throat> throwing something here, throwing something there. But a careful reading would show us that James is actually really, really intentional on how he wraps this book up. And really, if you pay attention to it, the theme of these last few verses in, in our vernacular at Fellowship would be active faith. The answer James has given us in these last few verses is faith without works is dead. That's what the whole book has been about. It's why, I guess it's been over three months ago, we gave everybody a dollar. We gave everyone a coin, it's a, it's a dollar. And, and we said, you know, hang on to this because the message of the book of James is, is that faith without works is dead in the same way that one side of this coin without the other side of this coin is no coin at all that biblical faith is belief. We believe in something. We believe something's true. And also we act on that. We do out of that belief and that is what entails biblical faith. And James is ending this with a very focused look at faith that works. Exhibit A, God leads his church through a plurality of called and qualified men, elders. Rob called it the intersection of God's work and our work. In other words, where does God's work end and our work begin? Well, there's an intersection by which you can't separate the two. Take, take the elders, for example. 
Uh, you say, well, Jesus leads the church, and he does. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor. But isn't it interesting that then he then leads the church, God's work, through a plurality of elders, and you can't separate the two. And one of the primary functions of the elders, this again is last week, is to pray for the body. Rob unpacked that. And I've just got to tell you, over the last few, I'd say weeks, in particular you all, uh, and last week, you know, was one of those where it says, you know, the, the Bible says, if you have a need, call the elders and let them pray for you. And, and Rob's been leading us as, as an elder board. I'm telling you, we, we've been praying for you. And there've been a number of you who have courageously said, would you pray for me? And you know what? You've, been, you've come to an elder meeting, we've prayed for you and we'll go to your home and we'll pray for you. This is what the Bible instructs us to do. And now what James is gonna do, he's gonna take that, that picture of, elders, you know, call the elders to pray, and he's going to look right at all of us and say, pray. Hey, pray for each other. This is where it goes. And so now we're going to look at this very focused look at prayer, our prayer, and I, I really do feel like we're kind of touching the Achilles heel, heel of the life of faith, because let's, you know, honestly, if we go to one another, and we say, how's your prayer life? There wouldn't be five of us in the room that would say, it's awesome, it's fantastic, would it? You know, it's, prayer is that, um, it is probably the most doable act of faith, okay? Because sometimes, you know, faith just takes something away a lot, you know, but just think about it. Prayer is talking with God. So it's the most doable act of faith and probably the most neglected, I said, I probably couldn't find five of us who would say, you know, I pray enough. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Who does? Really? Does the Bible ever say, do you pray enough? It never does. And yet we, we carry that as if there was enough. By the way, how would you know that you pray enough? You won't. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So we need to remove that kind of as a, as a marker, if you will, that I pray enough. And uh, this, this message, as he wraps this up, is really focused on prayer. But I want you to know in a few moments when you leave, I really don't think James is gonna shame us and guilt us about prayer. He doesn't. But he offers us some instruction around prayer that quite frankly, I pray will change the way we pray. I really do, and I, and I trust that it, that it will. Let me say two things about this before we dive in. Number one, there are no secrets to prayer. Y'all, there's just not, there's no, there's no, I finally figured it out. Now the mystery's solved. There's just no mystery. There's no secret to prayer. And secondly, I want you to say there's no special endowment. Prayer's not a spiritual gift. There's no special gift for prayer. Uh, it's simply available to all of us. The Holy Spirit who lives in all who have put their trust in Christ prompts us, leads us, enables, empowers us to pray, to have a conversation with God. Uh, it's what uh, Sharon just read when she read in, in James 5 that Elijah had a nature just like ours. You all, that means exactly what it sounds like it means. It's kind of that old phrase, you know, he puts his pants on just like every guy in the room or, or every woman, you know, it's a person. So it's, it's Elijah had a sin nature, just like you and I have a sin nature. You know, he, he resisted prayer just like you and I resist prayer, deny prayer, whatever it may be. Do you know Elijah had, was a man of tremendous faith? 
And my gosh, he was a man of tremendous fear. One minute, Elijah is, I'll tell, we'll talk about this story. He's, he's doing, he sees the miraculous. And the next minute, he's just a total coward. And he's a, it's like, whoa, that looks like me. It does indeed, because all of us have a fallen nature. And Elijah has a fallen nature. But James says, I want you to pray. Elijah's a good example. Pray as he did. Now, this is gonna be a little different because out of these two verses, uh, it's gonna launch us into an Old Testament story that I'm literally, I'm gonna walk us through. We'll hit it quite quickly, but it's important that we, it's important that we grasp uh, Elijah's story. I want you to look, you're still right now in James, and I'm gonna reread this because I wanna pick up verse 16, the second part. Here's how it goes. James writes, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. For example, then he tells us about a righteous man whose prayer accomplished much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Was it, is he saying that you and I could actually pray, and we could stop the rain, we could stop weather? No, that's not what he's saying. He's using Elijah's story as an example of how we can pray. We can pray like Elijah prayed, not that we could command weather, but that we could see God truly respond and answer our prayers, even as he did Elijah. The question we need to ask, or the question we need to answer is this, how did Elijah pray? And I don't think we can understand how he prayed unless we go back and go, okay, it looks like God built certain convictions into Elijah that he then brought to his praying. And we can bring those same convictions into our praying. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings. That's where we're gonna be for the most part. 1 Kings, go to chapter 16. You're gonna flip all the way back in your Old Testament, scroll all the way through whatever on your phone, whatever it may be. Go to 1 Kings 16. As you're going there, let me give you the context because you know, we, we gotta know what's going on. We're, we can't just pull this ver these verses out of nowhere. They belong in a context, and here's the context. The nation of Israel, God's people, they are divided, now that should bring in our minds a red flag immediately. So we immediately know things are not right with God's people. They're divided, civil war. There are 10 tribes that are in the north and they are called Israel. There are two tribes in the south and they are called Judah. This is the period of the Bible, the Old Testament called the divided kingdom. I've always been confused by this. I don't know about y'all, but I just always remember what is it, Israel? Is it Judah? Why do they call it Israel when the whole thing's Israel? And why are they calling only, I don't know. All I know is it's Israel and it's Judah. And the way I remember that is I comes before J. So I always remember Israel's on top, okay? Israel and Judah. First and second kings describe the rise and fall, the rise and fall of the kings of Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom. Elijah, okay, Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel. First Kings begins by focusing pretty specifically upon the first kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, I'm gonna read their names. 
This is, you know, 15 chapters worth. Jeroboam, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri. You don't even need to remember their names. I just want you to know there were six. What the Bible focuses upon is what was written on each one's epitaph, each one's tombstone, if you will, which they, had, they didn't have, but it, said, it would say this. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what we remember. Okay, we got six that did evil in the sight of the Lord. And now we pick up the story in 1 Kings 16. Look at verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, that was king number six, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. That was the first king, the son of Nabat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Think of a big giant wooden totem pole that's a female deity. You know, they make this thing to worship. He made the Asherah. Thus, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, it seems like I've been in this for a little while. I, I get these passages with this number thing going on. There's six kings that did evil. Ahab is number, say it. What does seven mean in the Bible? Completion, whole. Now we, appropriately, it's completion and whole as in whole and good and right, but you all, it also is complete and whole as, as bad as it can get. I mean, th there's the epitome of evil. King number seven and Israel, you all. Think, I mean, just get this in your head. This is the people of God whom God rescued from Egypt. Their king, their leader is leading them to worship Baal. And the worship of Baal involved sacrificing your children. It's my, I mean, you can't get your head around it burning your kids on the fire and having sex with priests and priestesses in the, this is what he is leading them to. You talk about seven as whole and evil. I mean, they have hit the bottom, they burst through the bottom and they're just plunging into total darkness. Elijah shows up on the scene. Chapter 18, verse one. I'm sorry, chapter 17, Verse one, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except, <coughs> excuse me, by my word. Well, there's your biography of Elijah. We don't know anything about him other than God had clearly spoken to him, other than James, thousand years later is gonna reach back and go, that guy's prayer is how you can pray. And apparently this is his prayer. And he says, it's not gonna rain until I say so. And Ahab, this evil king, you can imagine, we'll see this when the drought kicks in, 
searches to kill him wherever he can. <coughs> Elijah shows up. Jane says, this is basically, this is his prayer. There's three, three events that follow. And if, you know, if you, if you think the Bible is boring, and may I say to you, it is in places, okay? Because it is. I don't know how else to say it. it is. Some of the, I'll probably get letters on that, but let's just know. But it is in places. You just, it's like this stuff going on. It's like, it, you know, um, genealogies, whatever. This is not one of those places. I kid you not. Most of us probably in the room, many know this story. If you don't, I'm gonna hit it quick and I'm telling you, read it. It's like, that is crazy. That's not, what? You'll just be going, I can't believe that happened. So these three events occur. I'm gonna give it to you under three headings. The ravens, the widow, and the resurrection. I'm gonna repeat this. So if you take no notes, you'll remember this, I think. The ravens, the widow, and then the resurrection. Under those three, there's, I'm gonna offer you a lesson. And I'm suggesting that this lesson is a conviction that resides deep in Elijah so that when he does pray, the rain ends, he brings those convictions to that prayer. And that's gonna be where it attaches to you and me. Do we bring those same convictions to our prayer? So with that, three events. The first is the ravens. Look at verse two, chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. This is under the ravens. God sends him to this small creek, you all. Honestly, he's out in the boonies. And he says, I've commanded the ravens to feed you. And when we see that it's ravens, we, we, we kind of go, okay, what do we know about ravens? Well, in the Bible, they don't get a good, good descriptor. You know, they're not, they're, they're off limits under the law. They're dirty scavengers. They eat meat, dead and alive, trash, they're like crows, you know, uh, for, in biblical times. Um, and God says, uh, I'm gonna command ravens. And honestly, you know, I'm, I, there would gotta be a part of Elijah that goes, ugh, you know, but I'm gonna command ravens to provide for you. I want you to know our understanding of the Bible is, is it's, it's historic and it's literal. This is not a myth. This is not a make-believe story. He goes by this creek where Ahab can't find him. That's kind of the underlying theme. And every morning, these ravens bring meat and bread. They feed him every morning, every night. He drinks water from the brook as it goes by. The lesson I wanna suggest is this. God is over all his creation. God could have commanded the ants to do it. You know what I'm saying? In other words, God's over all his creation. That's the raven. Secondly is the widow. Notice the story goes in verse seven. It happened after a while that the brook dried up. Why? Because there was no rain in the land. There you go. Now he's not, got nothing to drink. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and stay there. Behold, here comes the command. I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. The ravens, the widow. In the Bible, widows are the most vulnerable 
economically disadvantaged human beings on the planet. This is just, this is the way it was. This is like God saying to you or I, you know, you need ice, go to the desert. I've got it there for you. You don't get ice in the desert. You don't get provision from a widow. He goes and he finds the widow. She's gathering sticks. And she says to him, I'm gathering these sticks because I have just enough flour and just enough oil to make a last meal. And I'm gonna make it for myself and my son. We're gonna eat it and die. I mean, this is hopelessness. So, so think about this. In other words, God says, here's hopelessness. Out of that hopelessness, I'm gonna provide for you, Elijah. It's fascinating that uh, what happens next, that uh, Elijah says, would you make me a piece of bread first? How many of us could have done that? She doesn't. Because Elijah says, if you'll make the bread for me first, the little flour and the little oil will never expire, never run out. It's an endless supply until God reigns on the land. She makes the bread for him. They eat, <laughs> they live. The lesson I wanna suggest here is that God is not limited by what limits us. Listen, there, there was only enough flour for the last meal, only enough oil for the last meal. That's a fact. That's just a pure limit. Let's not ignore that. But God is not limited by what limits us. The ravens, the widow, the resurrection. The story continues in verse 17, chapter 17, verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became sick and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. How about this for a sad story? He the, the widow and son are fed, then he gets sick and he dies. You know, it's kind of like, I, I think I'm like the widow kind of going, wait, you can, make, you can make this last forever, but you can't keep this sickness from killing my, you know, she's upset with, with Elijah and she comes to him and says so. He doesn't react. It's beautiful in the sense that he doesn't react to that. He empathizes with that and then he says, give me the boy. And he takes the boy up to the room that he's staying in and he lays on top of this boy. I don't know what this symbolizes or represents, but he lays on top of him three times. Each time, return his life to him, God. Three times, return his life to him, return his life to him. And the third time, his life returns to him. And this is the first resurrection in the Bible. There are more resurrections than Jesus as you know. This is the first resurrection of a person who died and life came back. And it's because Elijah prayed over him and upon him. And here's the third lesson I would suggest. God is not defeated by death. So, so you know, Elijah prays, but then notice that God takes him through these experiences. And I, I wanna suggest develops his convictions within him through these experiences. The only way you get them, y'all, you don't, you don't develop convictions by reading books. You develop convictions by trusting God and watching him at work in your life. That's how you develop convictions. And he developed these convictions that I'm phrasing in this way. God is over all his creation. God is not limited by what limits us and God is not defeated by death. So this is Elijah's now experiences. And do you notice that God, you see, intentionally put him in those situations to develop those things in him. And y'all, God is the same today. 
you're not in any situation or circumstance that God has not invited you into and brought into your life such that you too would develop these same convictions. Now, that story's crazy, isn't it? It gets crazier. I mean, it really does. That's why I want you to read it. And now comes the big part of the story because in chapter 18, verse one, turn there, you'll see it says, now it happened after many days that the, wor- that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. See, all this other stuff took three years. And then God tells him to go to Ahab. Again, can you imagine what it felt like for Elijah who'd been hiding for three years to go to the man who could just command the guy standing next to him, cut off his head and stand before him again and say, uh, okay, it's time, I'm gonna end the drought, you know? And uh, Elijah does what God says. And what happens next is really one of the most memorable stories in our Bible. I'm simply gonna summarize it. Elijah, and I'm gonna do it in our own terminology. Uh, Elijah goes to Ahab and then says, okay, I want every, Elijah says, I want all of Israel to meet on Mount Carmel. So they go up on this mountain. It says all Israel's there. It's not the whole nation of Israel, but representative Israel is there. And, and uh, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal. Okay, this is the God that Ahab's worshiping uh, to a duel, literally a duel. And the duel is this. We're gonna build two altars. You guys, 850 prophets of Baal are gonna call on Baal to consume the sacrifice. And then there's Elijah, 850 to one. Elijah's gonna call on his God to consume the sacrifice. Now, I get tickled because there's, there's real humor in this story, as, as almost grave as it is. I want you to look at verse 24, chapter 18. Elijah says, then you call on the name of your God, okay? And I will call on the name of the Lord, And the God who answers by fire, he is God. This is what's funny to me. And all the people said, that's a good idea. You know, I'm just going, really, that's that's a good idea? I mean, that's what they said. And it's like, okay, okay. And y'all, this is what happens. Elijah gives the prophets of Baal the first shot. They build their altar. They cut their cow. They throw their cow on the, on the altar and they start in the morning and say, Baal, consume this, you know, get fire fall from him. They, they go all morning. Nothing happens. Elijah starts to tease them. Like he says, he must be asleep. Well, what's wrong with Baal? Is he going to the bathroom? You know, he's just teasing them. And then they start cutting themselves, whipping themselves. It says blood poured from them. And what is that? I mean, I don't make make light of this, but they they mutilated themselves in order to get Baal to act, okay? Baal come and burn this stuff up. Nothing happens all day. It comes time for the evening sacrifice and it's Elijah's turn. Elijah rebuilds an altar that used to be there, puts the cow upon it, the cut, cut ox. He digs a trench around the altar then he commands that water be poured on the altar. And then he says, do it again. And he says, do it again. And he says, do it again. Four times they pour water on this whole thing to the degree that the trench around it is full of water. And why did he do that? I, I don't know specifically, but it certainly seems that 
Elijah is, is making explicitly clear that when God consumes this, they don't, you know, think that he had, you know, flint in his sandal and he kicked off something. You know, it's like, I'm not, this is, I'm not, you, whatever happens next, you're gonna understand, this would be like t- you and I taking a match and a, and, a, and, a, and a box and trying to light it underwater. That's what he's showing, that what's gonna happen next, if it happens, is impossible. And then he prays, and I want you to see his prayer, it's beginning in verse 36 of chapter 18. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, here's his prayer, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I mean, that just blows the Avenger movie away. I mean, you know, this is crazy. And it really happened. It's sad to say, you know, if I'd have been in that crowd, I'd have been saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he's God, the Lord, he's God, you know, but the truth is, it's like Palm Sunday. You know, the Lord is not God to them, as we'll see as the story unfolds, but in that moment, they recognize the Lord, he is God. Now, interestingly, this is not the prayer that James refers to when he uses the example of, of, of Elijah, he says, pray like Elijah prayed. He prayed that it wouldn't rain, then he prayed that it would rain. So the prayer that he says, you know, pray like this is, is when he went to pray for rain. Now, let me tell you what happens. Uh, boy, the fire consumes. He gathers up all the prophets of Baal, all 850 and slaughters them. And if you feel like that's inhumane, uh, you just need to understand that's, it was e- what do you do to evil? That's what you need to understand. You destroy evil. He destroyed them all. And then he went up on the very top of the mountain and uh, he put his head between his knees and he prayed. His assistant was with him and he said to the assistant, go and look toward the sea and see if any rain is coming. And the assistant said, no. He said, go again. No, 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 go again. Seventh time. The assistant comes back and says, I see a cloud the size of a man's fist on the horizon. That was the answer of prayer for that small cloud became a deluge that ended the drought as it moved toward this arid, dried out, parched piece of land. With that, we go back to James chapter five. James under the inspiration of the Spirit, notes and chooses Elijah of all the prophets he could have chosen. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. And I think this is the foundation of his prayer. Elijah prayed earnestly. Scholars are not in agreement on what this word means. You know, this happens, this happens. You know, there's things we're not sure about. Some, some hold that this, that earnestly means Elijah prayed fervently. 
And I don't doubt that at all, and, and that could be what it means. I'm gonna tell you it's not what I think it implies but based on the literal Hebrew and some other thoughts. And, and not to say that we don't pray fervently, but I, I, did, I, read, a, I read a message that someone at a commentary, and he'd said in this commentary, you know, clearly to pray, for, you know, the prayers that God answers are prayers, are fervent prayers. And he described his daughter when she was standing by a pond and, and, and she said, dad, look, or something. And he didn't look. And then she said, dad, come here. And he didn't go, whatever. And then finally she was like, daddy. And, and, and it's like she fell in. And he says, you know, that's what God answers is that desperate plea. And I know that God does, but may I say to you, I, I don't believe that's what James is saying. And, and in part, I would say, because that's not what we see happen in the gospel accounts. We see God answering wimpy prayers, not just desperate prayers, not just like intense prayers. So I don't believe that's what he's saying. Elijah prayed fervently, and so, so pray fervently, you know, intensely. That's wonderful to pray that way. But there's another side to this that I think is what the intent is here. The word fervently is literally in the Greek, he prayed with prayer. And Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed with prayer. What in the world does that mean? J.A. Motyert, a commentary that I've found very helpful in James, describes it this way, quote, the Greek says literally, with prayer, he prayed. And the meaning is not his fervency nor his frequency, but that he just prayed. That and nothing more. James Adamson puts it correctly when he says, not that Elijah put up a particularly fervent prayer, but that praying was precisely what he did, end quote. Now, you may be thinking, okay, you could have said that 25 minutes ago because you just went through this whole story of Elijah and you come to the end of it and you look at us and say, y'all, James is just simply saying, James is saying, I believe this, just pray. And I absolutely believe that's what, that's what he's saying. Just pray. Don't get all hung up on this gargantuan stuff about prayer. Just pray. But I recounted the Elijah story because in our just praying, I do believe he chose Elijah in that there are certain convictions Elijah brought to his prayers that we too, I, I, I believe this, we, we can learn to bring to our own prayers that God is over all creation, that God is not limited by what limits us, and that God is not defeated even by death. See, we bring that to our prayers. And I'm gonna add a fourth. I'm gonna add a fourth. And y'all, I think this may be the backbone of prayer. Don't turn there, but in 1 Kings, and I read it earlier. I'm gonna reread it for you, just a reminder. When Elijah prayed at the sacrifice, he prayed this way. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. 
catch the gist of that in his praying, the, the, this, this core lesson? God makes himself known in our prayers. God makes himself known in our prayers. And I think that's the fourth and foundational lesson, that when we pray, we bring the conviction, God is over all creation. God is not limited by what limits us. God is not defeated by death. And God makes himself known in our prayers. And I think with that last lesson, it's almost like we've said, oh, I I know how to pray. Do you know how you sometimes stand with people? You might hear someone say something to you or you might be in a situation and the truth of the matter is you go away and you don't pray because this, it, I do this, okay? I'm telling you, I've gone away going, I just didn't pray because I wouldn't even know how to pray for that. I don't even know what to pray. How about this as a foundation of every prayer we pray? God, I have no idea how to pray, but would you make yourself known in this situation. That's it. Rob and I are so intent on making this as practical as we can, and so I wanna give you some practical ways this may live itself out. How about this? When, when you're faced with a problem, before you start solving the problem, before you take out your pencil, before you start adding up the budget, And before you start thinking of how you can fix it and what you'll do and if I do this and I do that, how about before you do any of that, when you're faced with anything, our first response is pray. Just to to pray. Yesterday I had my son's car. I I was getting some work done on it. And, And in the weirdest, I lost his keys. I'm always getting onto them about losing stuff. I lost his keys, y'all, and it's like, how could I lose them? Because my car's parked right there. I'm in my office right here. It, and, and I'm telling you, I went crazy for about 30 minutes before. And I'm teaching this stuff and I'm not doing it. You know, it's crazy. And I, and I go, God almighty, I don't know where those keys are. Would you, this sounds so silly, God, but would you help me find the keys? See, but there's nothing that's not worth praying about. And I did find the keys, by the way. It's a whole different story. But how about before we start working ourselves up, we stop and just go, I'm gonna pray. That's just pray. How about, how about when we just pray, it might look like you're talking to someone in the parking lot, in the lobby out there. Maybe you're talking to someone in here after this service and they say something to you and it's like, oh man, I'm so sorry that happened or wow, that's a neat opportunity or whatever. And, but before you say goodbye, what if you just stopped right there and you said, can I pray with you about that? That's called just pray. Have you ever prayed with someone on the phone? You know, that, I don't know why we think we can't, but how about you're talking to someone on the phone and, and uh, I don't know, let's go here. You're texting them. I don't know, but they're talking about life and something. And rather than, you know, your last thing being goodbye, I love you. Hello, I'll talk to you later. How about if you just stopped right there and just said, may I pray about this with you? Just a simple prayer. Now, now I'm going to, now I'm going to push you off the edge with this one. What if you were in Costco or Target or Walmart at the ball field? You're, you're, at, you're in school and this thing happens. You get word of this or something happens or your friend's talking to you. 
What if right there, and I'm thinking of you students, I'm talking right there in your classroom, and I'm thinking of us at Costco adults, you just said, and maybe you need to say it this way. Look, I know this is gonna be weird, but how about if we just pray right now? <laughs> Y'all, that's awkward for me, you know, to pray like that. But wouldn't that, wouldn't that be just pray? Now, think about this. You go, man, that would take some faith. Duh, and the Christian life is about faith. And so, yes, in our culture and day, it takes some faith to pray publicly, but you just put your hand out and you pray. And here's the thing, and this gets back to the thing I said earlier. I know what it's like to stand with someone and them tell you a story or situation and you go, holy moly, I'm so sorry. Or, and in your mind, in my mind, I'm thinking, I just need to say, I'll pray for this and move on because I have no idea how to pray. But now I do, you see, now I do. Because if I do nothing, if I do nothing but just say, can I pray with you? God, would you just make yourself known in this? Because that's all we got, amen. Then you've prayed. So you, have, you know how to pray. And if I may offer a simple prayer, this is so rudimentary, but I think can be helpful. I wrote a, an imaginary prayer that I might have with someone. And it went like this, Lord, Mary is facing a difficult situation and I'm standing with her right now. And I'm gonna ask with her on her behalf and on behalf of her family that you would act. God, you are over all creation, so we know there's nothing not under your authority and control. God, you are not limited by what limits us, so I don't see how this happens, but you always do. And even if the worst were to happen in Mary's life, oh God, even if it were death, you're not defeated by death. And so, our desire as I stand here with my friend is ultimately that you would make yourself known. Amen. I prayed with Mary. My goodness, what God might do in and through us. if we just prayed. I mean it, y'all, just as a people of God, if we just prayed.